0: Welcome to a special Biota podcast. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Jamie Matthews, who's a founding member of Graith Brighton and is just back from A Life 11. Jamie, firstly, welcome to the podcast. And for people not familiar with your work, can you give an introduction of who you are and how you got interested in artificial life?
1: Yeah, hi, Tom. Thanks very much. My, my original background is in computer science. I did an undergraduate degree in computer science at the University of Manchester. But while, while I was Studying all the uh, the technicalities of computers, I got quite interested in in biology and evolution specifically through mainly through uh, Richard Dawkins' books originally, but also quite a lot through Steve Grand as well. Um, I, I enjoyed both of his books. And um, after I finished my computer science degree, I was slightly at a loss for what to do, so I had a year out. And during that year, I came across the course at the University of Sussex, which is a master's course called Evolutionary and Adaptive Systems. Um, which is very much connected to the artificial life side of things. So, I, uh, I moved down to Brighton last year and I've been studying that course, and I've, I'm now about three weeks from the end of it. Is that the course that Iman Harvey runs? He does, yeah. He, he's the course convener, or he, he was this year at least. But uh, there, there are lots of people uh, working in that area at Sussex, um, so it's quite a big group.
0: So, talking about A Life 11, for people who may have attended previous A Life conferences or people who aren't familiar, with the A-Life conference can you give some discussion to the number of folk that attended Maybe the demographics of the folk that attended, and uh, just the general format of A Life Eleven.
1: Yeah, well, I, I've never been to an A Life conference before, and this is the first time that it's been in Europe. Um, and there were an, a number of changes to the format this year. In the past, it, it's been run as a series of um, workshops followed by with a single track of talks through, through each day and a poster session. Um, so, if you submitted a paper, it was either uh, accepted as a, a full presentation or as a poster. This year. For the first time, they're running it. They ran it with, um, I believe, it was six parallel tracks. So, at any one time during the day, there were six different talks going on, uh, so you had to kind of pick and choose between them um, but the the advantage there is that every single paper that was accepted was actually accepted as a as a full ta- a full uh, presentation, and you could submit either a full paper or or an abstract, and uh, both of those were given a full presentation if they were accepted
0: so in terms of the attendees, did you get a sense that a majority of them were graduate students or did you get a sense that they were practitioners what was your sense of the general demographics
1: i think that there was there was um a broad spectrum really there there were people from all over the world there probably most of them from the uk simply because the conference was held in the uk uh, and it's obviously easier to travel yeah a mixture of graduate students professors a few amateurs as well there were there were some people who on the uh, delegates list were listed as independent so i assume they Uh, attended of their own accord and uh, were not connected to any particular universities. Uh, And there were a few people from industry there as well, from a few companies.
0: Obviously, the the big keynote was Stuart Kaufman, but I understand that he wasn't actually at the conference. Can you give some... Discussion to Stuart's video link.
1: Yeah, it, it wasn't actually uh, it wasn't actually a video link. It was a pre-recorded video that he'd done. It was about half an hour long. He, he was originally intending to travel, but um, due to uh, illness, he couldn't. Uh, not not serious illness, just something that restricted his movement. Um, so yeah, his talk was about was uh, based on a book which he's published recently, which I haven't actually got round to reading yet. Um, which is called Reinventing the Sacred. The background to it was um, the idea that. There are a lot of things in in evolution which are fundamentally unpredictable. Um, that was the point he was trying to make this he had this idea of the adjacent possible. The example he gave was of the the swim bladder in a fish. The speculation is that 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 prob- uh, swim bladder is something which um c- can allows the fish to control its its height in the water by releasing or or adding air into a particular organ in its body. Uh, and the speculation is that this probably evolved from uh, a lungfish, which which re-entered the water and then its lungs flooded and it, and it got this ability to regulate its height. So that's kind of a a chance happening in a way which could only possibly have happened after the evolution of lungs. But there was no way that that particular combination of lungs and you know the benefit of regulating the height could be predicted by any sort of modeling process really because it's very specific and i think that's a really interesting idea and i think there's there's definitely a lot of truth to it and the idea that that evolution can can do some very unpredictable and odd things where i didn't particularly agree with him uh, or where I kind of diver- diverged from his argument was the fact that th- what he called this adjacent possibility, he, he said that this was the fundamental creativity in evolution and w- what really drove the evolution of interesting things. And he he said that this is an awe-inspiring process, and, and I completely agree with that. And I think it is definitely, you know, it's uh, it's it's important to have this this sense of awe um, in nature. But what he called that then was he said that that was something that was sacred and he actually said that what we should call this, this fundamental creativity is God and he suggests that this then could possibly improve dialogue with religious extremists which I think is a, a bit of a strange argument because if you have to spend half an hour explaining in biological terms what you mean by God then you're not going to get very far in your dialogue with a religious extremist um, so I didn't particularly agree with him on that point but I think, I think his, ta- his talk was absolutely fascinating and he's, he's a very good speaker and he really got his point very well
0: he seems like a, an interesting character and certainly someone who probably it would have been wonderful if he'd appeared on location so people such as yourself would have had the chance to raise your hand and ask him the, the kind of questions that you've raised absolutely
1: I- I think it would have it would have uh, created some very um, very interesting discussion. In fact, in fact, at one point in the talk, somebody in the audience actually jokingly rose their hand because they wanted to ask a question, which uh, generated a bit of laughter. So, yeah, I think that's one of that that was a bit of a disadvantage of him not being there. It would have been an interesting discussion afterwards.
0: This is something that Steve Grant has characterised in terms of the idea of West Coast thinking. But do you feel that there is a distinction between artificial life as it's practiced in Europe and artificial life as it's practiced in the US, particularly with regards to these kind of ideas of of pushing boundaries and linking up with the creationists and these kind of things. Do you characterize that as being... Something that is quintessentially American.
1: I think. I think what is quintessentially American in that sense is is the whole concept of really having to maintain a dialogue with creationists and religious extremists. Because in in a way, it, 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 the problem almost doesn't exist uh, in this country. It, it wasn't even in the front of anyone's mind. There was never a question. This is a meeting of scientists, and there was never a question anywhere about the about the the real whether or not uh, evolution was actually happening. Uh, it was just kind of taken as a given. Yeah, I think that's. Probably Probably something which is a lot, a lot more um, prevalent in America. The, the, the having to having to start your argument by by claiming, by arguing that evolution actually happens, not not the, not having to start your argument with some specific feature of evolution.
0: But you look at Dawkins then, and I think Dawkins has been moved into the US argument through through Dennett and other people. It is an interesting discourse, but I think more what Steve Brown characterises as being West Coast thinking relates to, I guess, an ability to link, as you say, what you feel is fundamentally a science with ideas in the humanities or ideas in a popular dialogue. And I think that's something that resonated, as you were describing what Kapha was saying, with a lot of the discussion that occurs in the US, is that there is a need to popularise what artificial life developers and academics are doing through linking up with things that are in the current dialogue and currently obviously the creationists are in some regard in the current dialogue in the u.s but certainly when you look at things like Gaia and the singularity these kind of things there seems to be a need for folks in the u.s uh, artificial life developers practitioners to have some interface and interaction with that and then provide strong criticism but do you see this as being part of the discussion in the the uk and europe as well
1: i think to some extent it is i mean I'm I'm not very familiar with the the particular culture of uh, artificial life in America, but I think I think to some extent it's 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 certainly something which which the public which which creates kind of interest in the public in a way. And th- there were a lot there were some articles actually in the in the UK national press about the conference, and there was one in the in the Telegraph uh, newspaper, and uh, it, there was also some coverage on on Radio Four interviewing the the organisers of the conference. And I think I think these kind of deep questions are definitely something which. Uh, people in the uk are interested in as well as this specifics
0: Takeshi ikigami's keynote was I, I believe it won the presentation award for the entire conference
1: that was actually that was the presentation award was actually won by one of his uh, students who presented a very specific part of what he said his his talk was was this specific model uh, and lots of other things as well can you give some outline to what it was all about Takeshi's keynote was uh, had the rather controversial title of Artificial Life is Dead, which I thought was an interesting way to start an artificial life conference. The basic point that he was making was that A-Life, you know, as a field has been around for a number of years now and no central uh, theory or methodology has actually emerged from the field. There seems to be this 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 question of asking, what is life? And in fact, rather than specifically defining it, what artificial life has done and what it's succeeded in doing is exploring lots of concepts around the question. And it's just, it's kind of an ever-changing process. And what he wanted to say was that this was actually a good thing. He made the, the, the example of, in the early history of biology before Darwin... Biology consisted of of people going around the world collecting rare and interesting biological specimens, strange species, but strange animals. And without this process, and and Darwin did this himself on the on the Beagle. And without this, Darwin would never have been able to come up with his his sort of uniting theory of biology. And w- what Takeshi was was really arguing was that artificial life practitioners can often be get quite worried about how connected their model is to real biology, and whether they can that whether they can really draw these links between that between their abstract model and the actual biological process and his argument was that we shouldn't really worry about this too much because all these artificial life models can produce a lot of interesting um, phenomena and what we should really do is study these and he called it um, we should we should create a natural history of artificial life we should find these these interesting phenomena and study them and report on them and then by doing this we can start to to draw together all these different aspects of, of a life models and perhaps then we can come up with some sort of interesting Theory, rather than trying to start at the beginning before we've done this process, trying to generate a theory from nothing in a way. So that was that was really what what the the main
0: point of his keynote was. And that resounds very strongly with regards to the discussions that have been going on in biota, and I think also probably your own thinking too.
1: Yeah, and definitely. And, and he, he actually mentioned uh, the fact that a lot of a lot of work in, in a life is done by amateurs and hobbyists, and he's, he he was very uh, encouraging of this.
0: Can you talk a little bit about his student's paper?
1: I'm not a chemist. It was a a very uh, chemically-based paper. Um, What they'd essentially done was create some oil droplets suspended in water, and they had this process going on in them. I'm afraid I can't give you the specifics, but they could actually move, they could propel themselves around the Petri dish that they were sitting in. This was based on a model which he'd made in a computer, and then he'd actually instantiated it in in the real world. And so this was kind of an example that he was giving of these these interesting phenomena that you can find in in artificial life models.
0: In terms of other presentations that were given, can you highlight maybe two or three more that gelled with you particularly?
1: Flicking through my notes to see what um, I can find. Just briefly, there was, there was one which I thought was quite interesting, which was actually given by um, an undergraduate student from uh, Southampton University, which was a model of How epigenetic evolution can guide genetic evolution. So there seems to be a lot of focus at the moment on on epigenetic evolution, on non-genetic but still heritable traits, um, whether that be things like culture or whether it be very biochemical processes. Again, I'm I'm not familiar with the biochemistry of it, but methylation processes which can can affect the expression of particular genes. But it's not clear how much longevity this this can have because sometimes these effects can only last for say four or five generations, and it's not completely clear how much they can actually affect the process evolution themselves but this model suggested that it was possible in, in a similar way to the Baldwin effect for, for these particular epigenetic effects to then change the selection pressure for genes and change the evolutionary trajectory of the genetic evolution and I thought that was quite interesting. The keynote on the Wednesday morning was Ava uh, Jablanka from um, the University of Tel Aviv who's who's getting quite a lot of coverage in the press at the moment. She does a lot of work on, uh, on these epigenetic effects and her keynote was uh, specifically about that and about different models of uh, epigenetic inheritance there was an interesting session which was on soft robotics, uh, which I believe you were going to uh, mention, you were going to bring up anyway. This is the the process of, of building robots which aren't built from rigid structures, which can actually change their form. One of the speakers uh, gave the example of the uh, the Terminator robot, which is kind of a liquid metal thing. Uh, they're not quite up to that level of technology yet, but they're doing a lot of interesting work on, on taking inspiration from how, uh, from how Caterpillars move and how they work uh, to try and build robots based on that and also on uh, tensegrity structures which are based on the compression and tension between solid struts and strings. This speaker was talking about control systems for these and how you can generate control systems for these tensegrity structures which are very closely connected to the actual structure itself and the actual um, mechanics of the structure. That was a pretty interesting talk. And then there was another one in the same session which was about taking inspiration from tongues, trunks and tentacles rather than building these solid robot arms which are used in factories building sort of soft manipulation which can reach around corners and form interesting shapes. So that that was a good talk. Just to briefly mention the other keynotes, there was Andrew Ellington who was talking about how biological systems are inherently very noisy and he, he thinks the whole idea of biocomputation, of trying to build models of actual kind of uh, electronic computers in biology, which some people are trying to do. He's very critical of, of that idea and he thinks that's the, entirely the wrong way to approach it because you're trying to impose this very, this very structured computer model onto a messy, noisy biological system and he thinks that's the wrong way, to, wrong way around to go. He called it amorphous computation which was a way of building still com- computing devices from biology, but devices embracing that noise in a way. He, he said that that was likely to be more successful.
0: You You haven't talked about wet artificial life at all. Was there some standout papers with regards to wet artificial life?
1: There was a very strong focus, I think, here at this conference on on wet artificial life and actual biological and chemical models. Unfortunately, I didn't actually attend the wet artificial life sessions because they clashed with other things that I was interested in. So I can't really give you any of the specifics on those, unfortunately. Did you get
0: a sense of their attendance compared to the rest of the conference?
1: I think they were were fairly popular, yeah. I'm told by my friends and my uh, people I know who did go there that they were uh, quite well attended.
0: It's always been a difficulty with regards to biota, and certainly when we had Mark Badeau on, he asked in advance whether we would talk about wet artificial life or whether that was part of the biota narrative. Obviously, we're very strong with regards to Software and occasionally robotics, but wet artificial life is a topic that we haven't really explored too much through Biota yet. In terms of your friends that attended the wet a life stuff, would any of them be interested in coming on a Biota and talking about it from a graduate student perspective?
1: There's a distinct possibility. Yeah, I could. I could definitely. I'll definitely pass on the message and ask if they might be interested.
0: Now you gave a, a paper with regards to simulated memetics. Can you talk a little bit about the paper that you presented?
1: Yeah, th- this paper was uh, was some work that I did last. Like, last year it was really just a term paper originally for uh, one of the courses on the evolutionary and adaptive systems MSC and it was about a way of simulating cultural transmission which is a fairly tricky thing to do because you know, when you simulate a biological system or a physical system it's just generally a question of choosing the variables in the system that you want to to represent and then representing them as numbers in a computer and then you just run the model and see what happens but of course the problem with culture is that it's all filter, filtered through humans Human modelling humans is a notorious difficult thing to do as the the failure or or near failure of artificial intelligence has shown. So this work was based on a model which was actually suggested about 10 years ago by Robert Axelrod of Prisoner's Dilemma fame and it was kind of a cellular automaton type model but with with random updating and it's without going into the details it, it's not a particularly complicated model but it essentially represents cultures as just strings of numbers so it abstracts away all, all the messy semantics and meaning from the cultural elements and then allows you to run this process and see what happens in cultures and he used it to answer questions about how cultural divergences can form spontaneously without any any extra mechanisms you can get these these divergent barriers forming between cultures even on on a originally uh, ho- homogeneous grid my work was really just a small extension of that which added the concept of mutation or cultural drift to his model and and studied what effect that would have on the cultural evolution. But really, I mean, the, the, the thing which I tried to get across in my talk was the fact that I think this is a fairly interesting model. There have been some other papers published using the same model, but it seems to have uh, fallen out of favour a bit recently, and I think it's time it maybe got a bit of a resurgence.
0: Can you talk a little bit about Dawkins' Whispers paper?
1: It was an introductory chapter that he wrote for a book by Susan Blackmore called The Meme Machine, which is really, that was, her book was, was really what Dawkins called the strongest kind of attempt at getting the, the memetic theory out and really really exploring it to its uh, conclusion and he used the example of these chinese whispers about how cultural trades can change over time and it's kind of like a a chinese whispers process but i I believe if i remember correctly that paper is available online for free somewhere so it might be worth searching for i think that's right so it might might be worth doing a bit of googling if you're interested in that
0: and for people who are on the biota site well again i don't want to make any claims but this was the element of his biota 2 lecture as well which occurred, what, 97, 98. So maybe he was reflecting on that when he wrote the Blackmore piece, or alternatively it could have just been part of his thinking for a long period of time. Do you think that simulation offers a, a new window into memetic theory which hadn't previously been considered?
1: I think it is something which memetic theory has kind of it's, it generates a lot of disagreement because no one's really sure exactly what a meme is and no one's really sure exactly how they're passed on and how high fidelity the transmission process is. And it's a lot more, of as I said, it's a lot more of a difficult thing to model in genetic evolution. I think trying to find ways to model it can be useful and can definitely maybe add weight to the theory.
0: Part of the problem is the idea that, for example, brown eyes and blue eyes are represented by a single gene. This is quite fallacious and the problem with memetic theory in terms of mapping back to genetics from the folks I've talked to is that if you convolute the idea that memes aren't necessarily whole ideas but in fact are in, in combination to produce the ideas that are passed on. I mean, this is the complexity with regards to the memetic genetic analogy. In terms of your own simulation, do you think this is a, a potential career in terms of expanding memetic theory into simulation, into testability, these kind of things?
1: I'm not sure whether I'd go as far as calling it a, a career. It's definitely something that I'm, I'm interested in, but I'm, I'm really not sure what I'm going to be doing in the future. It's something that I think does deserve a lot more work. The idea is very, very interesting. Yeah, I, w- I would love to see someone working on it.
0: I think it's a current theme and even if you look back at Langton's work with regards to swarm and also Professor Paul Johnson who we've interviewed, the social sciences are always looking for ways to model phenomena through artificial life and I think this field is something that could certainly be easily expanded. I think what's particularly curious, is that it may be something where Dawkins is almost a Lamarckian with regards to Darwin, and there may actually be an additional approach that is needed. In terms of the a Life 11 conference, I have a couple more questions I wanted to ask you, but I wanted to kind of conclude our a Life 11 discussion. Is there anything more you'd like to add with regards to the conference?
1: The only other thing I wanted to say was the fact that the, the last keynote, which was given by George Attard from Southampton, I think that actually very neatly connected back to Takashi's opening keynote, because what he he was talking about really was about synthetic life and about you know actually instantiating and building living systems from non-living materials. But the point that he wanted to make was the fact that the question of what is life really is kind of a bit pointless because it's impossible to define it. It's going to be a human definition even if we do decide to, de- to define it. And I think that links back to Takashi in the way that, you know, we should still try and do these interesting experiments like the work that he's doing on generating uh, complex chemical systems without actually worrying really about whether or not they're alive and whether or not they're biologically connected. And we should just uh, study the interest. Interesting things that come out of them.
0: Very true. As this is your first chat on the Biota podcast, I have a couple of additional questions, particularly looking at the folks that are congregating currently on the Biota Facebook group. The thing that I'm finding fascinating is that a number of them are, as you are, either undergraduate or graduate students coming up through artificial life or bioinformatics or informatics or these kind of programs. Can you talk a little bit about your background reading and your sense of the history of artificial life and where artificial life is today in that history?
1: That's an interesting question. I I think that originally when when artificial life started off it was it was a lot of people studying these different phenomena and kind of trying to unite them to find this this question of what life is and i think that the fields diversified so much since then that there are people who w- call themselves artificial life researchers who work in in lots of other different fields and it, it seems to have turned into this huge umbrella and I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all I think studying living systems is 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 an extremely useful thing to do and whether or not you call it artificial life or whether or not you call it something else it's still very worthwhile
0: very true of course you're you're talking to the choir here you've discussed Dawkins you've discussed Steve Grand. But in terms of formal education, how do you actually learn about artificial life?
1: The first term, of it's called the Easy MSC, as it's short for Evolutionary and Adaptive Systems, which is a bit of a misnomer, considering the amount of work I have to do at the moment. The first term, there is a a course called the Artificial Life taught by Inman Harvey, and that's very much just the background of artificial life and the history, and it's kind of a whistle-stop tour of artificial life, and studying a lot of the different work that's been done, with Inman's particular slant on it, which can put an interesting spin on things. And then beyond that the course that I'm on anyway which is really the only one I I can speak about because it's the only one I'm familiar with we do quite a lot of lectures and studying about animal and machine intelligence the comparisons between how animals actually work and how we try and simulate intelligence and the reasons why traditional AI methodology seems to have failed we do another course called adaptive systems which is taught by Anil Seth which is more specific examples of how adaptation is important in, in various different forms in the natural world and all these all these courses Really, are taught by a combination of lectures and seminars, where we're given several papers to read or one or more papers to read each week, and then we have a, a discussion about them. And I think really that's that's the only way you can teach it because such a, a lot of people in in even in my course, there's I think there's about 15 of us this year, and we all have completely different ideas and completely different things. And I think really the, the only way you can do it is through an awful lot of discussion and exchange of ideas. And I think that's definitely the best way to do it, which is which is why the bio to podcast is is fantastic because it Gets people talking about artificial life. Yes, I have
0: nothing really to add to that.
1: Treat it as an extended seminar group.
0: I'm always curious in terms of the paper surveying, and you've described Inman Harvey's particular slant with regards to uh, the paper surveying. In terms of the papers that you're given, are they previous A Life conference papers? Are they things that are published in the Artificial Life Journal? Are they things that are published in related? academic works or do you survey hobbyist projects as well
1: i don't think there was much in the way of hobbyist projects although in a way the early papers in artificial life i think really were hobbyist projects because you know there was no such thing as artificial life when it started off i'm just trying to find for you the uh some of the papers that we actually read do any stick in your mind well there's obviously the, the classic ones carl sims uh evolving 3d morphology which is where he he did some very early work in genetic algorithms modeling actual full organisms with <laughs> modeling both the morphology and the control systems. That's really interesting work. Um, we we re- read things about biology, so evolutionary topics. One of the, the the papers that we read, in I think it was actually the first seminar that we did, was the Dawkins paper on the evolution of evolvability, which was, I think it was in appendix, or it added on to the, the blind watchmaker in one of the editions. Really a combination of all sorts of, of, of different things. Gaia theory, Inman is quite interested in in modeling, in models of Gaia theory, and a particular model called Daisy World, which he done quite a lot of work in evolutionary robotics that's another big thing uh, at sussex so yeah really uh, a wide combination of different things
0: well thank you very much for the chance to chat with you this evening jamie you're welcome thanks very much